0: Uh, this was week one of somebody other than. Uh-oh. Oh goodness gracious! <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Look, give me a break. Come here. here here's here's my here's my friend. Baptist history. Baptist history. Okay, okay. We have our model student today. Because we're going to start out with Baptist quiz time. Now, Pastor Fleming does not realize that that's going on. Is there an attorney in the house? (laughs) And not only does he not realize it, but he has just walked into the only class without food. (laughs) And now is our chance to tell him that... Actually, actually, I'm here on a complaint (laughs) that this is the only class without food. It was Pastor DeMond who told us we could meet in the chapel, but we could not bring in coffee, we could not bring in water, and we could not bring in food. Now, we've had a change in uh, direction here in some ways, and we just want you to think about it, because we miss it. I've already thought about it. You'll need to see my attorney about that. (laughs) Okay. Before you leave, you've got to endure the first five minutes of class. Okay. Okay? Here we go. Now, you've got to sit out there, because you've got to be able to see this to answer the quiz. So we're going to start this morning. <clears throat> now, I will mention as we're getting ready to go, that if I'm not mistaken, our wonderful pastor recommends that people consider having a Holman Illustrated, ooh, that doesn't really show up, a Holman Illustrated, nah, that doesn't really show up, a, hold on, hold on, Holman Illustrated Study Bible, Okay, now. You didn't? Well, Debbie Riddle said you did. I never rec- I never recommended that. Well, Debbie Riddle thinks you did. I've if been, you've got one... I've been misquoted. On page 1501, there's a picture of the Sea of Galilee at Noth where our class members that are going on our Israel trip in, in a week and a couple of days, next Sunday's their last day, will actually go. They get to see the first century boat that was discovered there and meet the fellow who made the discovery. Just one of many things you get, so start saving up for next year for the Israel class. Now, with that, let's go and let's start. We're finally covering Baptist history. And I thought we'd start with a quiz. Recognizing the (laughs) prize student we have, have you ever heard of the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes. Yes. How many of you have heard of the Southern Baptist Convention? Oh, we have a lot. That's good, because... We're a Southern Baptist Convention church. Okay, how about these? The Northern Baptist Convention, a few. The Baptist Association of America, a few. The American Baptist Association, I like that because that's the ABA, which is also the American Bar Association, though typically the Baptists and the bars are not together. There are a few Christian lawyers. Baptist Union of Great Britain. No. Baptist Union of Sweden. Association of Regular Baptists. I would love to see the Association of Irregular Baptists. That would be Southern Baptists. That would be the... (laughs) That is our SBC. The Canadian Convention of Southern Baptist Churches. Pretty good. Independent Baptist Churches Convention. All right, now the quiz gets harder. Which president was not a Baptist? Truman, Lincoln, Carter, or Clinton? No, Clinton was a Baptist. (laughs) Hillary's not, she's Methodist. But Bill was a Baptist, or probably still is. Oh, they all were. Okay, so it was a trick question, okay? <laughs> they all were. Now, Lincoln, when he got older, did not uh, affiliate with any established church, but he grew up a Baptist and never uh, distanced himself from it. So, uh, which athlete was not a Baptist? George Foreman, heavyweight champion of the world and cook extraordinaire on the Foreman grill. Jim Brown, incredible football athlete. Or Eric Little. That's the uh, chariots of fire, the flying Scotsman, the, okay. Okay, they all were. Um, <clears throat> Eric Little, in fact, died as a missionary in China in 1945 in his 40s. Uh, he was born in China to Chinese missionary parents and uh, went back and did that himself. All right, which biz- business was started by a Baptist? We have James Cash Penny, J.C. Penney. You can choose Chick fil A with uh, Truett Kathy, or you could choose uh, James Lewis Craft, Craft uh, Macaroni and Cheese. All of them. Okay, good, good, good. Which of these famous preachers were Baptists? We have Martin Luther King Jr., we have Billy Graham, or we have David Clement. <laughs> Which of these famous preachers were Baptists? All of them. Y'all are getting the hang. Okay. Which musician was not a Baptist? We have Johnny Cash. We have Chuck Berry. We have Mick Jagger. <laughs> and we have Buddy Holly. <laughs> Mick Jagger was not a Baptist. <laughs> Mick was born and raised Catholic, and uh, then since he wrote Sympathy for the Devil, I'm not sure he's been in a church, but if he has, it's like, I don't want to, like, denigrate him on the internet. Mick, if you are finding the Lord, praise God, and please come to our class. We'd love to hear about it. Now, here's the question as we get into the background, and now you can leave anytime you want, Fleming, because you've done your part. I mean, you've made a personal appearance. <laughs> the way oh they turned me off we're getting new carpet in here in the like spring of next year i'm just saying when you call my attorney mention the fact that we're getting new carpet anyway so good deal. thanks for letting me interrupt i just want to say thanks for connecting and i'm glad you're in sunday school way to go and i wanted to say in front of you thanks to this guy for putting so stinking much into this class we love you We love you. We do have the best pastor of any church in the country right now. Okay, so here's the question. How can all these people be Baptists? I mean, that's a pretty... And I left out a lot of people. Dale Hearn wouldn't let me list. Uh, Eddie Murphy, Britney Spears, um, Lucille Ball. Uh, Rick Wakeman, the keyboardist from Yes, he's a a Baptist. Um, Lots and lots and lots of Baptists. Where'd they all come from? And why are there so many different Baptist groups? I've listed a few of them. But did you know there are over 50 Baptist associations in the United States alone? The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Christian denomination in the United States, second only to the Catholic Church. But one out of every five Americans... Claims to be affiliated with the Southern Baptist Church. That's that's 20% of America. That's a lot of people. So uh, how do we figure out all this Baptist history? Well, we're going to start today. If we talk about the tree of faith that has grown, the church that has grown from that mustard seed that was planted, Uh, we want to try and figure out where on that tree the Baptists started branching off. Okay, let's do it. The origins of the Baptist denomination. So there are different theories about this. And I've been reading about... See, I grew up in the Church of Christ. I didn't grow up in a Baptist church. And the, the seminary school I went to was Church of Christ school. It was not a Baptist seminary. So we didn't really learn Baptist history. In fact, uh, there were some members of, of the church I grew up with who would, if they saw a Baptist coming in the door, we would tend to use the uh, window. Because we, did, we wanted to try and keep some line of distinction between us and the Baptist Church, there was always a com- competition growing up in Lubbock. And, and I, I have often said, and you've heard me say it here, the most successful preacher we ever had at my church in Lubbock was the one that would end his sermons three minutes early so we could beat the Baptist Church to the cafeteria line. I'm not joking. Uh-huh. And then the Baptists all got upset and they needed to get a new preacher because they had to wait in the line at First Cafeteria and we were just going right through. Um, <clears throat> So, I've had to do a lot of reading to get ready for this class, and, and I need to say also Dale Hearn, who has had the seminary training in, in the Baptist church and is, uh, uh, loves Baptist history and church history, has done a lot of reading on my behalf and condensed it down to these notes that would help me read it in a digestible time. So, I want to uh, say my appreciation to him for, for the help he's been on this class, especially. Uh, he's always helpful, but especially in these classes. I did my reading, and did you know that there's no real general accepted answer of who started, the, the, where this Baptist church got its origins? There are different theories, and I want to throw out some of the theories, and then I'm going to tell you why I discard them and where I land on this issue uh, coming to it uh, uh, with the background I do. Some argued that the Baptist church was started in the New Testament. This is called the perpetuity theory. The idea being that since perpetuity there's been a Baptist church and it just went underground for a few de- centuries, uh, All right, maybe 1,500, 1,600 years. It went underground and we don't read about it and we don't really know about it historically, but it's always been there. Um, there's not a lot of evidence, well, very, very little evidence to support that and that theory's really out of uh, vogue now. You don't find a lot of modern scholars who would agree with that. Even within the Baptist church itself, that's pretty much discounted. But um, some say, okay, the Anabaptist, after all, look at the name. It's got Baptist in it, right? So maybe the Anabaptist started the real Baptist. Um, there are some similarities. The Anabaptists would immerse, generally, most of them the anabaptists at least believed in believers baptism anna means again so those are the ones who are going to baptize people who've been baptized as infants they'll rebaptize them as believers so there's always been a, an idea taught out there that maybe that's the genesis or the origin of our baptist church eh. There's clearly been some shoulder rubbing between the Baptists and the Anabaptists, but it's probably not the start of the church. How about the Puritans? By the way, if you've missed our lessons on the Anabaptists or the New Testament or the, the Puritans, you can get them off the internet on our website, the www.biblical-literacy.com. Um, choir's done their part. Y'all were great again today. Wonderful choir, so thank you. and Please come and make yourselves welcome. Yeah, good job using your gifts for God Um, to our benefit, which we like. Um, The origins of the Baptist denomination then, some say the Puritans. Well, there clearly were some Puritanical influences on the Baptist and some Baptists on the Puritans, but uh, probably not. The best location we can find for the real roots and origins of the Baptist denomination are in the Free Church movement in England. The free church movement in England also produced some Puritans. It also produced some Anabaptists and Mennonites. And in that way, you can kind of see the blending together of some of these roots. But we really need to call it just the free church movement in England as the beginning or the starting place for the Baptist churches as we know it and understand it today. So that's where we're going to start our study this morning. We're going to spend several weeks on Baptist history. Uh, This morning's just kind of an overview. It kind of gets our feet wet. Next week is a class I'm extremely excited about. I urge you to come. Some of you have children who come. Uh, I never want to take children away from another class, but if they're not attending another class, this will be an interesting one for children. That does not mean that it's going to be boring for adults. It's a wonderful standalone class next week. So bring anybody you want. Bring your friends, bring your neighbors. No one will be offended, no one will be upset, and hopefully everyone will be blessed. It's a segment of Christian history that the Baptist Church has done that's really incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more at the end of class. But let's discuss today the free church movement in England, And, and a lot of this is some review but we need to review so that it's fresh in our brains and so that we see how that, in, that that review plugs into the Baptist church. To understand the free church movement, we need to understand two different things. We need to have a thought about what role the king or the monarch or the ruler played in the thought of of the people. I mean, and today, the Queen of England, she's not really much more than a, um, well, I, I don't mean to say this in a denigrating way, uh, uh, I don't mean it that way at all, but, but she's much more um, a, a representative for the public of what it is to be British. She's much more a, a um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? A figurehead. She doesn't really have ruling authority per se. In, in direct day to day. I mean, if you're upset that Britain's involved in the Iraq War, you complain to the Prime Minister. You don't go to the Queen, right? If you're upset over the English language, I think that's where you go to the Queen, because it's the Queen's English. <clears throat> Someone asked me the other day, don't you know the Queen's English? I said, of course she is. What else would she be? And, so, so, but, but we don't understand monarchs as a result, today, the way that that uh, the world did in the 1600s and before. So we've got to understand the role of kings, and we need to understand the role of the church, because, bless you, the role of the church is dramatically different today, in our mindset, than it was historically. And when I say today, in our mindset, I'm talking about 21st century Baptist or Evangelical Protestant mindset. It's very different than it was historically. So, let's start with the role of kings. That's the first part. The role of kings. Who rules society? Now, think about it. Who is our ruler in society in America? Nobody. We are. We, We got a government of the people, by the people. We vote. We elect. We make determinations. President Bush, whether you like him or dislike him, he doesn't rule my life and he doesn't make my decisions for me and he doesn't tell me what to do, generally. I'm not saying he doesn't have influence and power, but he's not, as our kids would say, he's not my boss. He's not my boss. So, who is society's ruler? Well, since Constantine, and you can go back and get the Constantine lessons, because we've gone through that about a year or so ago. Since Constantine in the early 300s converted as a Roman emperor to Christianity, Constantine began this concept that said, I, Constantine the Great, I am your leader in all ways. That's the way God made it. I'll lead you in religion, I'll lead you in battle, I'll lead you in society. I am, until Constantine, Caesar was God. Constantine said, I'm not God, but I am his representative on earth. And I have no doubt Constantine would use the scriptures that says God raises up kings and God deposes kings. And he would say, God has made me king and ruler. So you do what I say and I establish religion and I establish orthodoxy, and I am your boss. And not just Constantine, but that's the way rulers and kings were. Now, gradually, the Catholic Church begins to fight with the kings over this. And this is the history of the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is the Pope saying, well, I, the Pope, stand between everyone and God. There's God, there's me, and there's the world. The king is in the world. So yes, king, God made you to rule your people, and yes, you are your people's ruler and boss, but you account, you report to me. Because I make a decision whether you get into heaven or go to hell. And if you won't do what I say, and you aren't a good Catholic, then you're going to hell. And so will everybody in your kingdom. And so the pressure and the tension between kings and popes existed for a thousand years. Plus, who truly was the ruler of society? Who was the boss of you and me? And this was the big fight. Now, as we go into the 1500s, along comes Henry VIII. And Henry VIII says to the pope, yeah, yeah. Well, you may stand between God and everybody and every king, but not between God and this king. Okay? See, in England, God made me the ruler, period. End of story. So I rule all of England, and that includes the church of England. So see you, Rome. We stand on our own. And we are the Catholic or the United or the single church in England, and I rule all England because God made me that way. That's my job, man, and I'm sticking with it. And so the Church of England separates itself out from the Catholic Church, but it does so with the idea that the king is the ruler that God put in place to rule the hearts and the minds and the bodies of men. And you follow the king in all ways, or you are a traitor. That means you follow the king in religion, or you are a traitor. It's treason not to follow the king in all matters, including religion. So this is the role of the king at the time period we're looking at. He is the boss of you and me in all matters, okay? Okay? God's divine appointed decision maker. Now, set that aside. Let's talk about the role of the church for a minute. There was a very different mentality about the church for this thousand plus years up to the 1600s. A very different mentality about the role of the church in terms of you and me and God. It's very different than the mentality we have, and so I, I want you to really try and understand their mindset to see the roots of this church. Okay, here it is: you got God in heaven up at the top, and you got hell down at the bottom. Let me get that arrow out of the way. God in heaven up at the top, and hell down at the bottom. Okay, now the old mentality for over a thousand years was this: you want to go to heaven. You want to know who's going to heaven? It's the church. The church goes to heaven. And anybody that's not in the church, by definition, they go to hell. Now you and I are thinking, well, that's sort of the way we see things, isn't it? There's a difference here. It's not that the people that make up the church are going to heaven. It's the institutional church itself going to heaven. In the Catholic mentality, it's the Catholic church that goes to heaven. You want to go to heaven, you'd be in the Catholic church. And then you're going to heaven. Oh, you may have to stay in purgatory for a few billion years because you lived a horrible life. But eventually, all roads through the Catholic church lead to heaven. So you Catholic. Doesn't matter what your individual relationship with God is like. If you're baptized into the church, you're part of the church, you get to go to heaven, barring dying with some absolutely atrocious mortal sin that has not been absolved. General rule, though, you get in the church, you go to heaven. You don't get in the church, though, you go to hell. And I mean, go straight to hell. You don't pass go, you don't collect $200. Right down to the basement through the chute. And that was the mindset. Now... Take that mindset and take the church out. Because this is what started happening with the free church movement. The free church movement said, no, it's not that the church is going to heaven. It's the individual who's going to heaven or hell. The church is kind of out of the equation. It's a question of what's happening to you and me. It's a question of where is your soul? It's a question of how are you doing with God. Do you see the difference there? It's a focus on the individual, not on the institution. So now you've got a king who's making your decisions religiously. But you've got a people who are starting to think differently. Why the change? I still think the, the most... I, I, I look back at my history classes growing up. And I don't understand why they didn't make a bigger deal out of this in my history classes. Maybe they did. Maybe I wasn't paying attention. But they should have made... you How long were you homeschooled? Okay. So you see, if your history class didn't have this, you can look to your left and blame your mom. (laughs) But the rest of us, we have to blame our teachers. Sorry, Michelle. Give you all something to talk about over lunch. Um... I never understood why my teachers didn't make a bigger deal out of this. I think maybe the most revolutionary thing for Western civilization, next to faith itself, is the invention of the printing press. I mean, it's not just like, oh, gee, now we have a printing press. I mean, that's a huge deal. Because before that, people didn't read. No point in reading. You can't afford a book. Only people that can read are the monks who are in charge of writing the books. So nobody reads, education doesn't advance, people aren't free thinkers, and nobody can read the Bible and address God and try and understand God on an individual basis. They're almost totally reliant on the church to explain the religion to them because they cannot take Representative Debbie Riddle's Bible and put it up on it for everybody to see. They don't have it. Okay, So the printing press gets invented. And then all of a sudden, you can afford books. Whoa. If you can afford books, you might as well learn to read. And if you're going to read and you can afford a book and you're a Christian, what better book to read than the Bible? Whoa, is that what it says? They didn't tell me that one. And that really changed the way people thought. And that really changed the approach to faith and church and religion. It was a huge change. And now, put yourself in England in the early 1600s. One of the two people that really, most scholars say, founded the Baptist church was a fellow named Thomas Helwes. And here's what he wrote in a book that uh, got him sent to prison because the king of England, who was King James at the time, as in King James Version of the Bible, King James did not really approve of this. Listen to what he said. He said, It's not most equal that men should choose... Is it not most equal that men should choose their religion themselves, seeing they only must stand before the judgment seat of God to answer for themselves? Let me put that into modern English colloquial English. How dare you, king, tell me what I must believe and do in my faith when I'm the one who has to stand before God and be accountable, not you? If at the judgment seat I'm allowed to say, um, okay, uh, I know I'm going to be in a lot of trouble over some of this, but instead of me standing here getting judged, uh, make King James come in here and, and you judge him because he was making me do what he wanted me to religiously. So you see, always writes and, and he says, if King, you're not standing in my shoes at judgment, then you have no right to tell me what to do. Does that make sense? By the way, who does stand in your shoes at judgment if you're a Christian? Jesus. So does he have a right to tell you what to do? hmm He does, and he has a legitimate right to tell me what to do because he will be standing in my shoes in judgment. Thank God. So, Helwes writes this and uh, gets thrown in prison and winds up dying in prison a few years later. Here's the mentality shift. Let's see it again. God and a human. The Catholic Church taught that the priests themselves and ultimately the Pope we're between that human and God. You got sin in your life? You want forgiveness? Where do you go? Confession. You're gonna die? You want last rites? You want forgiveness? You want a good, as clean a slate as you can get heading up above? To whom do you turn? The priest. Luther comes in and Luther takes a Peter passage where Peter, who supposedly was the first pope, Peter himself told the Christians that you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. There's not a priest between you and God. It's the Lutheran idea, the Reformation idea, the Baptist idea, the evangelical idea, the principle of a priesthood of all believers. God has called every believer to be a priest. He's called every believer to proclaim God's praises because he's called every believer out of darkness. And so we are a priesthood. We, You want to call in a priest? Go to the mirror. You don't need a priest to intercede between you and God. The church doesn't have that role. You go to God through Jesus Christ. By the same token in England, what did we have? It's no longer, according to Helwes, the king who intercedes between you and God. It's not the king who's God's divine appointed ruler, who rules over you in matters. of. It's not. Pastor Fleming is not your or my mediator with God. That's why he is so emphatic in his sermons to say we are a church that's a service church. His job's to help us do our part before God, not to do it for us. There's only one mediator between God and you and me, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one who's the mediator. He's the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's what Paul wrote Timothy, and it's no different today for us. So the king is not a mediator between us and God either. And into this world and this mentality comes John Smythe and Thomas Helwes. These are the two fellows that are principally responsible, according to most historians, for starting the Baptist church. Now, you remember the pilgrims? Not the chicken, the ones, the turkeys, those pilgrims. If you go back and read the Pilgrim Lesson, or go back and listen to it, you'll go back and you'll hear me talking about John Smythe. John Smythe was one of the early preachers for the Separatists who became the Pilgrims. And if you'll recall, the Pilgrims were meeting in that northern area of England, and then because of persecution, they moved over to Amsterdam. And then they came back to England on their way to the United States. Remember that, those of you who were in the class? One of those key preachers who went to Amsterdam was John Smythe. And while he was in Amsterdam, he learned a few things. He learned the idea that believers make a decision to be baptized. Jesus' instruction to his apostles was to teach and baptize believers. Well, you don't teach an infant, he he reasoned. So you've got to have someone who's of teachable age. Teachable age about Jesus. Who is that? Well, that's something that we now colloquially call the age of accountability. It's that age where you are accountable enough to God to understand the teaching about Jesus and what it means for Jesus to have died on your behalf. And once you're old enough to understand that teaching, then you as a believer can make a decision for baptism. And this is what Jonathan Smith... It looks like Smythe, but it's Smith, I think is the way they pronounced it. Jonathan Smith, this is a, something he learned there. And so he first baptized himself, didn't have anybody else to do it. And then he baptized those guys in the church with him. And that's the start of the First Baptist Church, Literally. Not the one off the Katy Freeway, but the one over in Amsterdam, the First Baptist Church. And it was probably in 1608 or 1609, something in that range. One of his church members was Thomas Helwes. And it was Thomas Helwes who said, okay, what we're doing here is so important, even though the persecution's in England, we need to go back because we need to teach people. And the Baptist Church has been mission-minded from the beginning, from the very beginning, because... Helwes did go back to England, and he did teach, and he did preach, and he did write, and he did get put in prison for it, and he died in prison, a martyr. But that's okay, because that's what God called him to. And so that's uh, the start of the Baptist Church. The Baptist Church changes the model. It changes it from what I consider an institutional model of Christianity to an individual model. Here's the difference. This is what I've been saying, but I'm going to say it one more time in hopes that we've got it. The institutional model is the idea that there is God and the church is going to heaven. The church is going to God. And so if you want to go to God, what you've got to do is you've got to get in the church. And once you're in the church, you're in the safety zone. The individual model is very different. The individual model says, yes, there's God, and it's the people that are going to be with God. It's an individual decision that people make. Not an individual decision to go and be a part of a church, but an individual decision to have a relationship with God. This is where the talk comes, which you don't, by the way, find in the Bible, this phrase. is Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. A personal Lord and Savior you don't find in the Bible. And some even take offense at the language because of that. I do not. Because the question is really a personal question. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Do you stand before God on the merit of Jesus? Or do you stand before God on your own merit or your membership in a church? And then, that's not to say the church is unimportant, but it redefines what the church is. The church is no longer this institution that's historically been linked back to the apostles. The church becomes those people, regardless of religious affiliation, who have an individual relationship with God. Do you see the difference? And so it's that mentality that comes out and says, so the key now is not, are you a member of the church? The key now is, are you a Christian? And if so, by definition, you're a member of the big C church, the true Catholic church, the the true United church, the one church that exists, the body of Christ. You may attend a different type of building with a different label on it or a different church structure organization within it. But the the emphasis is no longer are you a part of an organization. The emphasis is do you belong to God? Now all those people that I listed as Baptists, I don't know if they're Christians or not. I just know they're part of an institutional Baptist church at some point in their lives. You can't just say because they're Baptists, they're Christians. Any more than you can say because you're anything, you're a Christian. Your Christianity is not based on where you're going to church. Your Christianity is based on your individual decision and walk with God. And that's something that the Baptist movement, more than any other I can locate, really spawned and brought to the forefront. And in terms of Baptist heritage, I think it's one of the things to be most proud of. Because... You can see all of of the different churches, but you need to focus on the individual. And that's why the Baptist church has been so mission-minded. And that's why the Baptist churches have grown so much. Now, the Baptist churches have never focused simply on the individual. They've recognized a need for the larger church structure. And so Baptists, since the 1600s, the middle 1600s, have had lots of different associations where they've grouped together different churches for a common understanding and a common mission or a common purpose. But these associations have never taken over the individual expression or autonomy of each congregation. So this church, for example, is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. But the Southern Baptist Convention is not the boss of us. This is an autonomous church. That has chosen to affiliate itself with the SBC. But the autonomy and the decisions for this church are made here. Because this is the collection of believers that gather together. Does that make sense? It's a different church structure than a lot of others. That was the free church movement. So you've got all these different associations. Of all these different Baptist churches. But that's not the same thing as a, 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 a lot of other denominations. Now, as we get ready to close, I want you to consider for a moment the Baptist footprint. It's big. It's big not only in terms of theology, but it's big in terms of people. And so here's where we're going to go with class. Ultimately, we're going to cover a famous Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. You're going to get to hear my Charles Spurgeon imitation. I may even come dressed for the part. Give me one of them little wig things going. Probably not, but I have to show up to see. Um, William Carey. He's uh, uh, Dale Hearn calls him. Dale just gave me the thumbs up. Dale Hearn calls him uh, the Baptist Wesley. He's uh, he's a, a missionary extraordinaire for the Baptist Church. A great inspirational story. Uh, Dale's already written me 12 pages on it I don't even know that I'll write anything that week I may just send it out as an email to everybody Here's what Dale says um, But it's a, it's a truly inspirational story uh, Lottie Moon, ever heard of Lottie Moon? Absolutely, um, we will discuss her But next week, we've got my favorite little niche of Baptist history I say my favorite, I'm a big Spurgeon fan too But I love this for next week. So I want you to write this down. Those of you interested in homework, go to Barnes & Noble and buy this book. Or get it off Amazon.com and read it for next week. It is The Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, that's the original. You'll get it and it'll look a little bit differently today. Written by the Baptist John Bunyan. And we're going to discuss The Pilgrim's Progress next week. It's a wonderful story. Uh, uh, we've gotten the fun of, of looking at Dante's Inferno. We've looked at, at some classic Christian writings before. But this is the story of a man named Christian and his journey. And it's a wonderful story. It's inspirational, it's motivational, it's touching. And if I can do it even a shred of decency as I tell you the story next week, it'll be a wonderful opportunity for you to bring somebody. Not only, hopefully, will you enjoy it, but it's a wonderful inspiration and motivational story for anyone, be they um, Catholic, Protestant, or Jew. Okay, Just anybody you see to bring. It'll be a nice class to bring them. With that, let's look at today's points for homes. The church is the body of Christ. There is no fuss over that point as it's written there. The church is the body of Christ, Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He makes it clear in the Ephesians that we're studying uh, uh, in big church. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Paul writes, you are, you, the Corinthians he's writing to. And by the way, he's writing to a bunch of wretched people in some ways. I mean, you go through the list of sins, man, these guys were like the chief of sinners. They've got problems with lawsuits they got problems with uh, 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 selfishness and greed. They got marriage, divorce, remarriage problems. The charismatic issues huge there. They can't decide who's going to speak in tongues and who's not. And their worship's are just disorganized and an absolute mess. They've got sexual immorality. They've got uh, problems with the Lord's Supper. In the midst of all of those problems that they have, Paul writes to him and says, "You are the body of Christ, and each." One of you is a part of it. And that's true for every Christian. Every Christian is a part of the church or the body of Christ. And the body, the church, is a unit. Though it's made up of many parts. And though the parts are many, they form one body. And that's the way it is with Christ. And so some of us are toes. Some of us are mouths maybe even a big mouth. Some of us are eyes. Some of us are hands. But the world that needs to see Jesus sees Jesus through his body, which is us. We are his hands and we are his feet. And we take his message and we take his love and we take his service. The greatest way that I believe Satan can attack the church is by painting us out to be a bunch of harsh, judgmental hypocrites. When the truth of the matter is, the real church is composed of spirit-led, kind, loving people who seek to live right, but also seek to serve a lost world. And that's what the church is. Now... Well, that's the church, and that's composed of all Christians, and we live and we work and we breathe as one body. And when one member hurts, we should hurt. And when one member's in need, we should feel the need. And when I smash my thumb with a hammer, it immediately goes to my mouth for ministry. (laughs) While we do that, we should never lose sight of the fact that we're not saved because we're showing up to this class on Sunday morning or we're showing up to this church. We're saved because we have made individual decisions to embrace the sacrifice of Jesus through faith as our own sacrifice. And God deals with us as individuals as well. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. It doesn't say that whichever church. It says that whoever. It's an individual thing. Last point for home. Let's remember the importance of one body and keep the unity of the faith. You know, Paul also wrote and said, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that I've committed to him against that day, right? Paul didn't write, I know what I have believed, and I'm persuaded that believing what I believe is. And here's the point there's a place for matters of faith. We gather together around a common orthodox belief in Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection and His second coming. But we need to always remember that there is a difference between matters of faith and matters of opinion. I have seen churches that have split over the issue of whether or not to have a kitchen in the church. I've seen churches that have split over whether or not to sing an invitation song. Oh, that's a big issue. The Bible says to sing to one another an invitation song, singing to unsaved people. So there's no countenance for that in worship. There's no biblical justification. There have been churches that have split over issues of predestination. Now, maybe in some way, in some shape, form, or fashion, that can rise to that size of an issue. But I can guarantee you if we took a vote in here on predestination, it'd be almost a 50-50 split to some degree. And so I just urge us to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's be more intent on trying to serve and love. And I'm not saying we don't study, and I'm not saying we don't share, and I'm not saying we don't clash, and I'm not saying we don't uh, uh, try and, and persuade. I think there's room for all of that, but we just need to always keep things in perspective and try to be discerning about where God would have us draw a line between a matter of faith and a matter of opinion, because there is one body. And there is one spirit, and we were called to one hope when we were called. There's one faith, one Lord, there's one baptism. And so with that, I encourage you to come back, enjoy the study of the Baptist church, because the footprint is large. And there are some incredible ways that that God has used the Baptist movement to change this world. And I look forward to sharing that with you. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that the doors of this building are open. We thank you that we have a pastor who loves us and seeks to encourage us to grow before you. We thank you for the deacons of this church that make it possible for us to have direction, make it possible for us to have leaders and, and ministers, that make it possible for us to function, and pray that you will bless each staff member, each deacon, each person within this church in an administrative capacity. But Lord, we also pray for our brothers and sisters who make up the the, the body of Christ expressed here. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. And I ask you to reach down and meet each one of them with love. And where they need the ministry of other parts of the body, I pray that we'll be there for them. That we'll see that need and understand that need. And I ask you to touch each person here today with the specialness of your one-on-one Love for them. Through Jesus Christ we pray, amen.